This is an epic quest across an ancient, magical kingdom. As Uma, a reluctant young shaman, seeks her revenge against the king who killed her family. But, guided by her otherworldly allies and unlikely friends, Uma unlocks a whole new world. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. Chapter 32 Uma They found the old woman at dusk. In a stand of skeleton trees, she was badly tangled in the silken wires of a sand lion's web, and the huge predator crouched, watching the blind woman from a corner of its web, waiting for her to die. Hair and massage, she called out to their caravan desperately, as if she were mad. Hair and massage? She was Yang, and still too strong for the sand lion to attack. But when she was weaker, it would. It would spin her up in its web until she could not move, and then it would inject her with its venom, turning living flesh and muscle into liquid. Then it would drink her while she lived, a captive, conscious goblet, unable even to scream. The creature's tremendous web around them was beautiful and terrible at once, like a wild and deathly harp. It clicked its fangs at their wagons, warning them to stay back. The sand lion's eight legs were brittle, but they were as long as a man was tall, and the claws were sharp. Gauzy light flicked the threads of the massive web beneath the open, gesturing palms of afternoon light. Lying sky, as if they couldn't tell it was about to rain down lightning and choking dust on them. A storm was following them along the horizon. Uma leapt off her jump board onto her catling. Ha! Wait, it could be a trap, Ogodai said. But the lone Yang woman had triggered something in Uma. The way her face was creased and soft and hopeful, as it kept looking up blindly towards some primordial memory of warmth and sweetness, finding this even in the battered sunlight. Uma charged towards her atop Silvern, holding out a sharpened staff. Birds strobed unafraid through the bony undergrowth, the contrails of sad moss, while the huge sand lion reared up thrashing its forelegs at Uma, clicking its circular jaws at her. It preferred to kill its prey when they were helpless and bound, Uma knew. But the monster was thrice her size, with such long and powerful legs... Lightning crackled on the horizon. Hair and massage, the old woman said, holding out her hands towards Uma, but unable to turn her face. Uma saw she was caught that way, bound in place with her face turned up towards the light, expectant and hopeful. Uma, watch out, Ogodai said. Uma charged Silvern straight at the monster, aiming her mast dead at its cluster of enormous eyes. The creature rushed to one side with a furious hiss, retreating into the trees. But now Silvern and Uma were tangled up too in the silken cords, like wet, white ropes tightening around them. Silvern keeled in a wild, screaming panic, and the old woman was terrified now, weeping. I'm caught! I'm caught! It's all right, we're here to help you. Hold still, Uma said. There. She tried to saw the woman free with her knife but the blade kept gumming up with a sap. Hold still, I'm trying to help you. A crash from behind them as Tolu or one of the others piked the sand lion down from the trees, sending it roiling wildly into the brush. There was a crash, and its high-pitched, whining scream ended suddenly to cheers. The old woman wept. I'm not cursed. Of course not. There, you're free now, Uma said. But the Yang woman flailed forward, face first down into the sand. Fern came up beside her, helping the stranger up as Uma went on freeing her catling Silvern. Easy, Fern said. Take it easy. Silvern shot out with his tail curved high, and Uma laughed dryly, using the underside of her boot to scrape off the balls of gum from her knife. Guess I'll be walking back. Tolu came over, waving the sand lion piked high above his head, 
Its legs juttered out, uselessly dead against the darkening sky overhead. Heat lightning pulsed. Mmm, Fern said, looking up at it, her pretty face open in anticipation. Ugh, don't tell me you eat those things, Uma said. If you try a bite and you still don't want it, I'll eat yours, Fern said. But don't worry, you'll want it. Lady, Uma said, taking the Yang woman's arm. How did you come to be here? Out here all on your own? I am Nanaline, the woman said, weakly. Hair and massage? Come to our fire, Nanaline, and rest. Yes, yes. I'm not cursed. I don't believe you are, Uma said. After all, you're free now. The lightning storm passed, and in the press of heat afterwards, with fat from the roasted sand lions shining on their faces around the campfire, the old woman told them her story. Before I lost my eyes, Nanaline said, I was a traveler, not like those dirty Chiriclo mind, but a wanderer. Fern raised an eyebrow, glancing at Uma. I traveled to understand, Nanaline went on. We aren't alone in this world, you know. There's others, other beings, from the stars. They're walking amongst us even now. Gods and monsters, and ordinary peoples too, just like us, but from off. Far, far off. I know what you're thinking, but I'm not cursed. I'm not crazy. I've seen them myself, I tell you. They're everywhere. Nanaline said. My people, they thought I was cursed. But Godex knows all this. Godex is one of them, after all. Do you think me insane? She began to eat hurriedly, as if they might take her food away. I talk too much when I should not. You're safe now, Uma said. No, we Cheerclo do not sit in judgment of others, Fern said, stiffly. Lelora took her daughter's hand and squeezed it. That's right. We do not. You've seen the beings yourself, Uma said to Nanaline. Long, long ago. I was only a child, but I saw them. Little ones. On the undersides of leaves. They have their own language. And then, much later, I saw a big one. A different kind. He tried to talk to me, but I couldn't understand. Then... A terrible sound in my eyes. My eyes were gone. Nanoline put one hand up to her face wonderingly. I always wonder what he wanted to tell me. Perhaps it was only that I am cursed. She finished gnawing the roasted leg and sat running her thumb over the length of it, lying across her lap like a great crescent moon. And if they'd not taken just this road, at just that time, Uma thought, the sand lion would be doing the same to Nanaline by now. How strange life was. Hair and massage, Nanaline said sadly. That is all I can offer you in return for your kindness. Have you soap? I wash hair well. That is not necessary, Uma said. My friends are kind. Certainly they've been kind to me. Now it is my honor to be kind to you. You may sleep in my wagon and rest safe tonight. The young woman laughed as if this were a joke. Ha! <laughs> in a wagon like a road dog. Yes, Nanoline, Fern said. We're Chiriclo. Nanoline flinched. Chiriclo? She stiffened. I am cursed. The people looked down. Some stood and brushed off their legs, drifting back towards their wagons. I don't believe it. Let me feel your face, girl. Nanaline thrust her hands towards Uma. She tilted back on her seat, looking around at Fern, who only shrugged. So Uma turned her face into Nanaline's touch. The old woman was gentler than she expected, her fingers warm, and as Nanaline moved her hands over Uma's features, suddenly the older woman crumpled into tears. You're one of them, she said softly. You came back for me. I knew you would. Yes, I'm a Chiriclo, Uma said gently. She could not bring herself to tell the woman she was something even worse than a Chiriclo. 
Nanoline wept. How many are you? We have some four hands, counting the children. Not so many. Uma looked at Ogadai. The caravan leader sat chewing blankly. He pointed his gnawed bone at Uma and shook his head, as if to say, she's your problem. You picked her up. You deal with her. Nanaline smiled sadly. Yet you saved me when my own people would not. They left me for dead. Tonight, I feast with new friends. I knew you would save me. I always believed. She held out the monster's cleaned leg bone to them in salute and felt it click in her hands as, one by one, Nanaline's new friends lifted their bones up to meet hers. Do you think she understands we really are Chiriclo? Fern said later. I tried to tell her, Uma said. So often we don't let ourselves know what we know, she shrugged. For all we realize, we're just as whatever it is that Nanaline is. Crazy, Fern said. Is that the word you're looking for? Uma shrugged again. I can think of worse ways to pass the time. Chapter 33, Noor Escape When they arrived in Chalice, the courtiers who met them at the palace gates were wild-eyed, rushing about with an anxious excitement that irritated Noor. The handlers clubbed the lizards into their holding chutes for the children, queens and oligarchs to dismount. In the end, everyone had ridden, and now the stables were chaos. Nor always assumed his mother enjoyed the pilgrimages on foot. But perhaps hers was only a performance, too. Maybe even she would have descended astride, with the king not there to observe her. Perhaps only the king enjoyed the climb. Life was a series of nested truths, Nor realized. But the most important truth, he felt sure, was the feeling he'd had in the baths. The way his father smiled at him and Nezmi's hand was warm in his. The sunlight feeling, that was all that mattered. But the courtiers and their endless, irrelevant rivalries spoiled everything. For a moment, if it were in Nor's power, he would have smote them all dead. The nervous courtiers flooded towards the queens and oligarchs, even as they were still descending from their mounts. And whatever it was, they whispered, paled each face as they heard the message. The knowledge shot through the room like an invisible, choking smoke. Everyone began to rush from the stables. What's happened, Nor said, swept up in it. We must go quickly to quarters, your highness, where Rothwell said. Nor stopped. No, oligarch. You will tell me what has happened. Where Rothwell's face rippled from irritation to oily pleasure. He nodded, pleased with the new command in the boy's voice. Not here, your highness. You must trust me. It is not safe here. In chambers, we are Rothwell explained all. You know your father has queens representing every human tribe of the kingdom, even the Chiriklo and humble jungle peoples. Nor nodded. He'd seen the other queens from a distance occasionally, alluring and mysterious. But the lesser queens were housed apart, as they were not fit to live within sight of the pure Yang queens like his mother. The children of the lesser queens were not provided oligarchs or special training, as they were only fit for the pleasure castes, perhaps at best to become ocean-going merchants. One of them tried to escape, Weir Rothwell said. But why? Nor said. Why does an animal want outside its stall? Just brute instinct, Weir Rothwell said. Have they caught her? Where Rothwell smiled a real smile now. His teeth were small and even, stained red from the small addictive berries he ate with every meal. Yes, there will be an execution. Nor felt dizzy. For the second time that day, he felt as if he'd entered a dream of prophecies and monsters. How could a royal be executed? If a queen could be executed, than anyone could. 
Nor's own pulse suddenly became deafening, as if the salt river were broaching the city walls. To erase, erase, erase this terrible new knowledge, I will make myself a stone. And the stone in Nora's mind came forward again, quieting him, reminding him of the nested realities he must attend in order to survive, in order to become king. Nora looked up at Weir Rothwell smoothly. Good, I will attend. Make the arrangements, he said. The oligarch's smile was a red crescent moon. Very good, Highness. Now... How would you care to dine? Chapter 33 The Chiriclo Five Deadly Corners For many nights, as they approached the great lights of Tintern, it was as though the Chiriclo were approaching the dawn itself, each night's voyage brighter than the last. But just outside the city, the massive trade road becomes a lie. Wheel tracks spread in a thousand directions into a wild campground thronging with travelers, traders, and taverns, all shifted together around starveling trees. Tulu laughed. So Tintern cleaned up the five corners, huh? They just chased all the characters out for a night or two. That's all they ever do. But, ah. Uh, I see happy money, lots and lots of happy money. Spends just as well as all the other kinds, I suppose, Ogodai said. Tulu winked. It spends even better. Shall we settle in? They rode in proudly, letting the five corners steal their glances as they came rattle-bagging in. Painted wagons, and Ariaku doing flips astride Uma's silvern, pulling off one casual acrobatic spin after another. Whenever Ariaku was sure he'd captured the gaze of some Yang journeyers, he spun around backwards, lay back with his stumps up on Silvern's withers, and pretended to fall off, only to catch himself again, gracefully, moving upright again as if he were liquid. Like Ogodai, Uma sank deep into her hood, avoiding all glances, while Nanaline called out, Hair and massage! Fern and her brothers danced behind Spellwalker, displaying their woven wares as Tulu came after them, bellowing. Misfits, malcontents, and mystics, young blades, love is a sorcerer, but I have the goods to ensorcel any heart yours desires. Pretties, pretties from every corner of the kingdom look good and die good, boys and girls. Here in the five corners, the black-scalped staff of death swinging from Lamados only made the golden man seem more gleaming. Misfits, malcontents, and mystics, hear me! Ogodai preferred to circle their wagons for safety, but the five corners were loud, what with vendors hawking their wares, kids screaming, and people dancing from stall to stall to tavern. Uma pulled her lopes off to one side, far back of the firelight and screaming laughter. This was the biggest trading ground she'd ever seen. It disturbed her profoundly. She unyoked her animals and strapped on their feed bags as Silvern, riderless, trotted over. Uma grinned, knowing Ariaku had already secured new friends for the evening. She offered up a little prayer to whomever might be listening for her friend's protection. Uma spent much of her free time teaching her creatures to trust her, to be unafraid of sudden sounds or sudden oncomers, to trust that Uma would always feed them, but only when they were well-behaved. Lopes were invaluable for their ability to provide labor without water, even for multiple seasons. Seeds up and morning's dew were all they needed to survive, but their long, spiraled horns were dangerous. Many a vagabond and catling exited life on the sharp points of those horns. Most of the Chiriclos heard were only partially tamed, if at all liable to spook or fight at the least provocation. When that happened, an overturned wagon was the best-case scenario 
but out of sheer arrogance, the Chiriclos seemed to prefer ungovernable animals. Uma curried down Mio, Kui, and Yale while they contentedly mulled at their feed. Oh, the summer-leaf sweetness of their flanks. The dearness of the animals as they leaned into her curry comb, letting her lift away the matted hair, the prickle burrs. She traveled light, always kept her wagon at least one-third the weight of any single lope. With three of them in harness, and Silvern stalking along beside, even a full day's ride was light work. But Uma took pleasure in keeping her animals in such fine condition that they all gleamed with health, their eyes bright, and their ears calmly alert. She slipped into her wagon and took the flagon of fang oil down from her altar, opened the stopper, and breathed in. Well, what was there to lose, really? She applied it to her wrists, neck, and temples, the resin cradling round her like an adoring specter. She sighed into bed, savoring it. That cloud of scent, the hot, fresh sheets, and the locusts outside. Night fires in the distance, like beating hearts in the grass, and the stars a great pricked womb overhead. They were fainter here, deluded as they were by the roaring lights of nearby Tintern. Uma broke off a palmful of dried flowers from her caravan's rafter and laid them in her altar as offering to the spirits of the four directions. She'd come to understand it wasn't safe to journey into the mystery without their protection, as well as the supervision of her allies. Several times now, shadow spirits had tried to invade her light body, and once she'd begun to think a skinwalker was tracking the caravan, and so Inga's locusts counseled Uma how to shape ceremony for protection and guidance from the four directions, from above and below. She closed her eyes, steadying her breathing, swept her hands overhead and then out to each direction, bowing deeply. Pray watch over me as I journey. After a few moments, she ascended up the shamanic trapdoor, up the tree in her mind, rising past the tops of its ghostly branches and into the river of light. She saw a vision of herself, just as she was now, sitting on the bed, but sheathed in quartz. A crack ran down her stone spine, and she felt steam rise from inside her, deliciously fluid and warm. It rose away, up along the rafters, out the windows, up into the sky. Uma enjoyed the play of it, how her borders dissolved into the atmosphere, the wet air, her perfume and comfortable bed, and then a teaching came into her mind, clear as a stone into her palm. I am an animal, a strong young animal. Uma could almost run her fingers along the teachings as more came. Uma opened her eyes, smiling. She closed the ceremony, bowing in all directions. Thank you. And the magical robe above her, it was made to be used, woven by her own ancestors, who surely would have wanted her to enjoy it. Uma took it down carefully, sneezing at the dust. Orayaku loved to talk about the spirituality of adornment, how important it was to array yourself just as you truly wish to be. Tend to your interior by honoring your exterior, for it was all a gift the gods had given you. Vessel, temple, chalice. It is all right to feel good, to feel safe. The ancient fabric of the robe warmed to her skin. It was so heavy, it drew her shoulders back like a lover. Wearing it, she stepped out into the embracing dark. Mio was tossing his head to reach the bottom of his feed bag, and Uma went to him, strapping it up tighter for him. She paused there a moment, 
leaning in close to smell his soft, warm hair. She could smell his blood. Her heart beat faster. This had never occurred to her, that she could... Lucky lope, a voice said. Uma stiffened, her hand instantly tightening around the vial at her neck. Show yourself, she said, or I'll have him gore you. Is he really so tame he'll kill on command? The voice revealed itself by degrees to be Yang. The speaker was attractive and young, beautifully dressed in a liquid material that reflected the moonlight. A rich kid, traveling for a lark, Uma saw them all the time. Impressive. Name your price, the Yang said. A signature Yang move, as if Uma's respect could be commanded by wealth. He isn't for sale, she said. Neither is my evening. Go away. I thought Chirclo liked to trade, the Yang said, holding out a palm to Mio, almost wistfully. Long, blunt-cut hair tangled around the open neck of their tunic, and Uma saw that the young person's face was equally masculine and feminine, like the Yang goddess, and intersex. As the truth prickled and then surged into Uma, a wild longing that bit straight into her heart. In the end, what we find beautiful is just what we need to know. Listener, in telling you this, I am jealous. Oh, you're not a Chiriclo. The Yang stepped back. They were startled by Uma, but unafraid. My friends are waiting for me. I better get back to them. My name's Dap. Dap held out a hand to Uma. It's my first time like this out on the road. I'm sorry if I offended you. But Uma could only nod. The crack in the quartz was too terrifying. She wasn't ready. She hadn't asked for this, not at all. If true pleasure required her true vulnerability, no, just no. All at once Uma was hotly embarrassed, and angry to be embarrassed, and by all things, a beautiful yang. She didn't want to feel this way, raw and exposed and vulnerable for she wanted nothing more than to take Dap's hand and be close to them. Uma's intensity gathered like a storm around her. She stood there glowering at Dap silently, with Mio uneasy between them. Well, uh, good night then, Dap said slowly. And then, hesitantly, they left, clearly trying not to glance back. The attraction was like a vivid cord between them, and Uma could only breathe again when Dap was safely in the distance. Mio wickered around at Uma, and she quieted him. Never mind, never mind. She shrugged her cloak back over one shoulder. But who is she kidding? Uma punished herself, making herself see every detail of the Yang prince's face of his soldiers disrespecting Inga's body until she felt nauseous with rage. Then she punished herself further. For a while, she would use her dying breath to avenge her people and murder the prince. How could she possibly believe she'd ever get close enough to actually have the chance? It was stupid. A stupid idea. And she was stupid. She'd failed everyone who had ever loved her, and she always would. She was nowhere near worthy of the beautiful cloak. She took it off. Mio would not be calmed. Uma stroked his nose. Sometimes, to learn the lesson, Mio, we missed the opportunity. But we knew that already, didn't we? Don't worry, boy. We won't let it happen again. Never. Ever. As for that out-of-control feeling... Towards a yang, curse goddess, and all their gorgeous faces. Uma forced herself to think straight. What if Dap's friends are soldiers? What then? And if Dap has a big mouth, what then? But somehow, Uma knew none of that was true. She sat down on one ling's stairs, imagining she could push away love from her mind, as she might push away exhaustion 
or hunger. The trouble was, she had nowhere else to put it. Chapter 34 But Tolu was more than happy to trade with Dab and their other Yang adventurer friends. Yes, yes, and where from? Oh, Tintern, of course, he said, his big voice booming across the trade grounds. Tolu always traded as if the world were watching. What a wonderful place not to be, he paused for their laughter. The Yang travelers were nervous young things, all of them, and that made them giddy, too. Well, a smile is your passport into any land, Tolu went on. But beware, my little friends, beautiful teeth do not mean a beautiful friend. The travelers looked at each other, sizzling with excitement. This was exactly what their parents always warned them about, exactly what they hoped to find. Tolu swept them towards his night fire, and there he regaled them with blood-chilling stories about executions and battles and ghosts drifting through the dust afterwards, who would grant three wishes to anyone brave enough to solve the puzzles of the dead. As Tolu spoke, he brought out great chapsacks full of milk and stirred them full of lope blood over the flames. Makes you strong, he said. His titillated audience all hesitated before they drank. Dap was the first, grinning around at them mischievously. It's not bad, they said afterwards, looking at each other, trying to read from one another's expressions whether this was safe. If it was still a good idea to revel with Chiriclo dogs in the dark. But by the third quaff, their hesitations were gone. The milk was so strong they felt it warm their throats and then their bellies, sending out hot vines of euphoria all through them. It worked like a spell. By the bottoms of their chapsacks, they were ready to spend everything they carried, just for the joy of handing it over to the amazing golden man. Tolu beamed, arranging ointments, runes, spices, powders, and oils before them like a massive tropical bird fanning out his jeweled tail for the sheer pleasure of it. Pretties for anything your hearts desire. I have fineries from sea to shining sea, and the finest magics for love, beauty, luck, even for power, if you so dare. You'll not see the likes of these again, my merry sojourners. What will it be? Player's choice. Magics, Dap said, marveling over them all. Tolu winked at them. Oh, yes, my dear. Life is magic, that we are here at all. The healer, outside the fires, Dap said quietly, tracing a slim, tawny hand in the air just above the vials, as if feeling how to choose. Does she have anything to do with the magics on offer? You must mean Uma, Tolu said. Has a delicious chill, doesn't she? If you're asking me, I assume you've already asked her? Dap looked at him steadily. Hmm. I'll see what I can do, Tolu said. But later, if it's a healing you're interested in, I have something for you. He looked from side to side and then leaned in closer. It's real magic now. Strong stuff. The strongest. You can see in the dark. Your blood sings and your bodies purge clean. Your eyes are so sharp you can see years into your future. Right now, right here. I'd say it's priceless. Although, of course, not everyone can handle. But Dap was already grinning. I can see your interest from here, little sojourner, Tolu said. Dap emptied half their purse into Tolu's hand, grinning. Tolu scoffed. Now listen, this is rare stuff, kid. You won't find it again. Only comes around once in a lifetime. In fact, I've never seen it before. Do you want to see your future or not? I'll need at least twice as much to share it with you. All right, Dab said, counting out more. What do we do now? First, you sit. He squared up Dab's shoulders. Right here like this, on the ground. I don't want you to fall. Roll up your sleeve, 
I'll be right back. Toulouse slipped into Lamado's while Dap's friends chattered, glittering with anticipation. He came back out, unwrapping a hide from around a small square, which was itself wrapped in waxed cloth. He showed it to them in his palm. This, my mystics, is the powdered scales of a dragon snake, dead a thousand years. Your hopes, your dreams, your pathway home into the mystery, it is all right here. Now, what happens next is, I break off a little bit and mix it just a wee bit, like so. Talu broke off a corner and pocketed the rest of the packet. He spat in his hand. Sorry, kids, but... It only works with spit. He squatted down next to Dap, stirring the mixture in his palm with a stick until the powder became a dark cream. Now I'm going to put the stick into the fire and then use it to make three little burns on your shoulder. Then I'll put this right on each of your burns. Will it hurt? Dap said. You'll have about ten heartbeats to get from here to there. Tulu pointed past their night fire, to relieve yourself. It's all going to come up, every toxin, your last few meals, any old spirit gunk you're carrying around. After that's all out, you'll shine bright as a fresh-born babe. You'll lie on your back and stare up into the heavens, and the stars themselves will tell you the whole secret of your entire life. Are you ready? Daph nodded. I guess someone has to be. All right, then. Tolu held the stick into the fire and then pressed the tip three times into Dap's upper shoulder, making small circles of raised skin. Then he dipped the stick into the cream in his palm and pressed the tip into Dap's wounds. Dap leapt up with a yelp and ran wildly away from the fire. Tolu grinned at their friends, who were all very still and wide-eyed. They heard Dap vomiting and groaning. Should we help them? One said. It's important for them to process it up on their own, Tolu said. I'll check on her shortly. You're a good friend. When the night fell quiet again, after a few moments, Tolu excused himself to check on Dap. The Yang was lying flat on the grass, smiling up at the night, face gleaming with joyful tears. How you doing, kid? Tolu said. It's like you said, Dap said dreamily. It's glorious. Right here, right now. Everything I ever dreamt about. It's all gonna happen. Well, how about that? That's beautiful, Yango. Happy birthday, Tolu said. Yeah, Dap said softly. Amazing. You're all right, then? Never better. Absolutely never better. After that, one yang went after another, all of them clamoring to be next until they all lay spangled around Dap, sighing up at the night sky. Toulouse stretched and wandered over to Ogodai where he sat with Lelora on the steps of Spellwalker. Right, brother boy, Toulouse said. I'm taking a break. You babysit. They're just gonna lie in the grass and grin up at the sky for a while. Ogodai laughed. Fine, fine. Take a walk, go pull your head in. Tulu drank from his chapsack, wiped his mouth, and wandered off. The air was cool and quiet between the gathering places on the trade grounds. It was all a vast tapestry of soul lines, Tulu thought to himself. The lopes wuffling and stamping as milk drunks stumbled between the fire circles. The dancers and performers and traders calling out lures to passing soldiers and couples. A bright and happy web that, for a moment, he felt was nothing to do with him. The hot, greasy scents of fry bread and salted meats, of rich milk spilling into the dust, of wet leather and canvas tents and feces. Released from his duties, Tolu felt released from the weft. Only an observer and no longer observed. Lanterns swung from the prickle trees. Tolu strolled, only half listening to the insects and showboating laughter. It felt good to walk, 
to stretch his long legs in the moonlight glinting off the wagon wheels and peeled trees. Someone had given Nanaline a basin, and now she was washing a man's hair in it. Tolu could see the man's feet rippling with pleasure, the velvet dark, these spell songs of becoming, the happy, chaotic spirits of corners reached cheerfully into his own. It was always strange leaves that unfurled at night, and he loved each one. Uma's wagon was alone outside the pattern of wagons and night fires. The vampire was sitting on her caravan steps, deep in the moonlight. Ah, the queen without any kingdom, Tolu said. Uma looked around at him with those full moon eyes. Tolu sat beside her heavily. Maybe I'll send those Yang kids to you next. They're wearing me out. Heard you had a little encounter. One mentioned they'd seen you. Pretty. I'm not a carnival ride. Uma looked down. Ah, they're just young, Wanling. Maybe they're not sentient to the fact that other people, uh, are experiencing their actions. Hmm, Uma said. Although they're older than you, right? I'm different, Uma said. Tulu nudged her playfully. Tell you a secret, Wanling. Everybody thinks they're different. Uma laughed harder than she'd meant to, and Tulu smiled. He leaned back, noticing a familiar fabric folded neatly behind them on the stairs. It was the antique robe he'd given her so many seasons ago, that long-ago night in the catacombs, as an offering for her services. He'd been so terrified of Uma then, he could scarcely breathe. Strange to remember that now, when he felt so connected to her. They were quiet a moment. Tolu relaxed his legs out, pretending a casualness he did not feel. Thought of something. A word that should exist. Hopin'. You know, it ought to be a word. Like hope and ripe together. He laughed, trying to keep things light. Because I keep hoping about you. Uma sombered and leaned forward, clasping her hands out in front of her. Well, don't. Tolu stretched calmly and changed the subject. They've got more to spend than they have since this lot. Learning a little something first thing on their journey is probably the best thing that could happen to them. He rolled his shoulders, groaning. So... Is it one thing balances the other? Healing one yang balances out killing another? Or do you think the kind of yang they are makes any difference? Healing a bad one maybe weighs more than killing a good one, that kind of thing? You tell me, Uma looked away. If it were up to me, I'd kill them all. But it's not my decision. That right, Tolu said. It isn't up to me whether it's right or not. All I'm supposed to do is heal when asked. She scowled, remembering how she'd run Dap off. Dap hadn't asked her for a healing, of course, but it was plain enough they'd intended on it. But do you believe the Yang can change? Tolu said. Their future has nothing to do with me. Change comes from within, Uma said, stiffly. Tolu felt her rebuke like a slap. He scratched his chin, hurt. You know better than me. No, probably I'm worse, Uma said. So, what if I went back and killed them now? All of them. Every gang in the camp. That would be the right thing to do, he said. Is that what you want to do? Uma didn't look at Tulu, but he felt her studying him just the same. I mean, we don't think they'll go back to their yang rat nest after their great adventure, Tulu waved his hands around bitterly and tell their people that they've been wrong about us all this time. The Wutar, the Chirklo. That it's time the Yang let us all live free and do as we please. Let's not kid ourselves. All you and I are doing, Uma, is we're making our enemies stronger. Day by day, we put clean blood in them, and they only get harder to kill. I don't know why we bother. It's suicide. Justice isn't suicide she said. Tolu laughed. As an executioner, I assure you, 
Justice is the slowest suicide. Anyway, Uma said, I've put clean money in the caravan's pockets and clean blood into you, too. All you did was weave me to you, he said. I can feel you pulling at me. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I didn't even mean to come over here and sit with you. All the time, Uma. What is that? So be stronger, she said, and don't. Make me stronger then, he said. You have everything you need to lose. It has to come from within. What does, he said. The change, the growth, I don't know, whatever it is you want. Softness and sweetness and whatever it is you're imagining you'd find with me. Because, I assure you, I am none of those things. But what's in me is part of you, he said. You can make me stronger. I can't do it alone. Uma looked at Tulu. What would the person you wished you were be doing right now? He'd keep talking to you. He wouldn't let you chase him away. But I can't, Uma. I could hurt her. I could hurt you. The things I've seen, the things I do, I want to do them. I know, she thought. That's the part no one understands, Tulu said. Could you love yourself as you are now, she said. Tulu snorted. I disgust myself. But you love other people who are flawed. Ogadai is no saint. True, he's King Rat, all right, but he's our King Rat. You need to remember that. Uma shrugged. Why not love yourself, then? Everything that's wrong with me? Everything that disgusts me? <sighs> Uma was quiet. I don't have time, Tolu said. I couldn't do my work if I was trying to love myself all the time. I wouldn't want to. So you don't have time to love yourself, she said. Tolu paused. It's possible to love yourself and still be a good friend. And still do your work, Tolu. Maybe. Suddenly, he was near tears. Try thinking of it like that. Preserve your worst fear within your decision to change. It's a mantra. Whenever you start to feel afraid, remember your mantra. Tulu nodded. Maybe, she went on, just test it for a while, your mantra. Just think it now and then. I love me. I'm a good friend, and I can do my work, and I love me. You don't have to do anything more than that. Love yourself Forgive yourself. Be a good friend. Keep doing your work. Just think, just think, I love me, as you do. You'll still be a good friend. You'll be a wonderful cheer glow. And gradually, your fear will dissolve. Maybe some other things will change, but don't worry about that right now. Because the first step is loving yourself just as you are right where you are, right now. Tolu's shoulders rose and then fell. Uma did not touch him, letting him calm himself on his own. When his breathing had steadied, she spoke again softly. Forgive yourself. Love yourself. The wind lifted. And what about you, Tolu said. Those depthless harvest gold eyes but Uma didn't answer, so he asked her again, everything unsaid forming and dissolving around them like fever ghosts. Never would she answer, and never would she give herself to him, and Tolu understood all of this suddenly, as an odd thought came into his mind. It was concrete and fully formed, and utterly not his own, my brother. Uma's girlish, rumpled brows. She was just looking at him, absolutely silent. And it was the edges of her mouth Tolu liked best, the precision there, in such contrast to their chapped, lush shape, the rich, dark color. Her mouth had sharp edges. It was ultra-real. 
Her face was the color of mist, and they were deep in the moonlight here, Tolu and Uma. The curve of her cheeks and eyes were just beginning to crease and slope down with age. She was a side sleeper, an uneasy sleeper. You could always tell the innocent ones, Tolu thought to himself. Every night, they dissolve into expansive, untroubled sleep, starfish sleepers with nothing to protect or hide. But this one wandered a dark garden at night. Never change, Uma, he said. The night took its moon away. Tolu returned to his night fire. Uma studied him as he left, still silent. That fierce, bright warrior, belonging not to himself but to the darkness all around them. Like me, she thought. Chapter 35 Nor A cage of heaven is still a cage. On the morning of the execution, Nor's mother and Nezmi's stood in the garden, speaking intently over mugs of steaming tea while the children played. The mothers had always sat together laughing. They'd never stood this way, like twin trees blowing in a heavy wind. They looked frightened and small, like servant girls playing dress-up. The Chiriclo were unhappy if you forced them to stay in one place for long, Nejma said. It wasn't right. Even if it is heaven, Devi said. What is heaven to us is not heaven to a bird. It wasn't right for him to keep them here. Nora's mother glanced around, visibly terrified, and drew her friend in close. Hush, Nejma. I cannot believe otherwise, Devi. A cage of heaven is still a cage. The palace grounds are not a cage to you and I, but I have seen the Chiriclo. When I was a girl, once they came carnivaling all the way up to the Cloud Abbey, with their stories and trinkets, and we were allowed to play with them. No. They told me the most wonderful stories, Devi, of how they live, traveling all the time. One could not love such a life and also love a life such as ours. One shouldn't force the same sort of life upon everyone. Devi grabbed Nejma's hands. I beg you to be silent, my dear sister. You know the walls here have ears. Nejma stiffened, shaking her head, and then hugged Devi. Oh, poor Altia, poor, poor Altia. Nor, who was listening intently, looked over at Nejmi. He was shocked, for he'd not realized the Chiriclo woman also had names, just like real people. Only people could be executed, so the Chiriclo were real people. Nor looked down at his hands, and probably they even wanted to be alive just as much as he did. I do not want to live in a cage either, Nor, Nezmi said. I'm not a girl. I'm a bird. Let's be birds together, Nor said. And so they played, soaring off into groves of darkness, light darkness, until their mothers came for them. Come, children, it's time. We must be brave and honor gentle Altea so that she will die a good death, said Nezmi's mother. Nor's mother took his hand, and together they walked back to their quarters, where their oligarchs awaited with folded hands. Whatever you see, don't be afraid, children, Devi said. Remember that no one can speak, and not one thing can happen had Godex not decreed it. Nezma looked away, shaking her head just enough for the children to see it. Chapter 36 Tolu Tolu woke up laughing. I love me. But why was Ogodai crouched there above him, so gray with concern? Seeing Tolu was awake, Ogodai straightened up again slowly, like an old man, and checked the tent flap. As Tolu woke further into his body, he realized how stiff he was. All over. Too much milk? Ah, must be growing old himself. Used to be he could drink the stuff like spring water, 
He rubbed his eyes and groaned. Ugh. Who dropped me on my head, man? Ogodai crossed his arms, looking down at Tolu. It seems you did. Suddenly, it clicked. Ogodai checking the tent flap. Tolu startled up on his elbows. Where are we? They were in a yang tent. The morning breeze curved the hide walls, bending them honey-colored with morning sun. For the skins were fine and well-tanned, but spattered all over with markings. Wet markings. Blood. Arterial blood. Shapes lay slack and dead everywhere all around him, at terrible, broken angles. Ankles, necks, eyes stared up like broken eggs, Tulu leapt to his feet, panicking from one shape to the next. Ogodai, the children, what happened? Ogodai was calm. We can move some of them out in a wash basin, but the others will need to wrap up in their things. Rugs, furs. We'll take them with us until we're well clear of Tintern, and then we'll bury them in the desert. What happened? Tulu said. Ogodai's terrible calm was making him frantic. Their animals aren't too distinctive, Ogodai went on. One has an extra horn. We can take care of that. One has a white haunch, easy enough to color. We'll take them to the cliffs and trade them off there. If they find their way back to Tintern after that, we'll already be long on our way. Tulu stared down on a liquid silver tunic long gone dull with caked blood. He went onto one knee, gently touching the blunt-cut hair, stiff now with blood. What did we do, brother? What did you do, you mean? Ogurai said. Anybody's guess. I hoped you'd remember. I assume it started as a game. Got out of hand. Maybe you gave them the weapons, I don't know. I left. When I came back, they were like this. And you had this in your hand. Ogurai showed Tolu a stone knife. You had it held up to your own neck. It was good I came in when I did. You really don't remember any of this. Tolu touched his neck. They were nice kids. Ogodai sighed. Well, I'll get the axe. He put his hand on Tolu's shoulder, and Tolu rested his head, briefly, gratefully, against Ogodai's hand. Just long enough to realize how heavy his own skull was. The last thing Tolu remembered was going into the tent with Dap, who'd been embarrassed to be alone with him. Yang prided themselves on keeping their own personal safety only as an afterthought. For a Yang to protect themselves over much was believed to be cowardly. The safety of the group was all that mattered. But in the end, Dap had leaned out and asked the others if they wanted to join, and inside the big round tent their party continued. The Yang belief, which had always seemed so ridiculous to Tolu before, made sense now, in light of his own cruelty. If Dap had thought of their group first, and foremost, perhaps only Dap would be dead. But none of it felt right, and Tolu rubbed his head fiercely. He liked Dap. Truly he had. His head felt like a wild riverbed, thoughts glinting around wildly like panicked fish, glimpsed and gone. Examine each as he might, he couldn't find a scale of resentment or malice towards the young sojourners. So why would he have butchered them? In fact, it was a wonderful party, wasn't it? He couldn't remember, honestly. Drunk. Too drunk. He smacked his head, and the minnowing doubts became a cloud, a madness, buzzing, a something else, alive, in his own head. Ogodai came back through the tent flap pulling a long axe out from within his robe. Do it quietly. Brother, Tolu said, I want you to start tying me up at night. After night fire. Plainly, I can't be trusted. As you wish, Ogodai went out again. As Tolu set to his task, he tried to put his mind somewhere else. Anywhere else. The bombed space where once Uma had taken him where things seemed capable of mending and nothing hurt. Chop. 
flesh and fat spattered into his eyes. All dancing done. The strong, perfect bones. Chop. Shattered seam from seam. Useless. Chop. The river was dead. Black waters. Treacherous. He could never ask her there again. But to be close to her. Just to be close to her. Uma, he thought. To lose mind quieted with the word. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you so much for listening. Please click five stars if you liked this episode, and please do send the show to any friends you think might like it. You can also subscribe on my website, eveningskingdom.com, and I'll send you a bit of exclusive magic along with the news that a new one's up today. Please have a listen. The next two episodes, uh, you guys, they were insanely fun to write. And recording them was... <laughs> I had a blast. I cannot wait for you to hear them. It's interesting as a novelist, when you're working and in flow, for me at least, when things are going well, I just totally disappear. Not that it's always like that. There's a lot of awful times, but whatever. You, you're in it for the flow recording aloud and then painting the story with music I'm present for it in this new way and I just love it so thank you so much for listening and you know for forgiving because I'm learning all this stuff from scratch so hopefully the audio will slowly improve might invest uh, in something to make things better but for now I'm doing it way lo-fi I'm recording this right now, for example, full confession, in Psychodelicious Lex's closet. So la la la, it's all a grand experiment when the traffic's kind of gnarly and the recording rooms and libraries are still closed. If you're still listening, I suspect and hope you don't terribly mind. And you are beautiful for that, so thank you. Desert Dog Mom writes, <laughs> Um, promoting this does not come naturally to me. But okay, part of this whole venture is learning to become more confident. Yes, that's embarrassing to say, but whatever. I know I'm not the only one working on this, so we can work on it together. Okay, she, Desert Dog Mom, writes, Paula Schmidt tells this story with some really nice things I can't quite bring myself to read aloud, but thank you, friend. She says, it sometimes takes her breath away, and the characters are achingly complex. In one moment, monstrous, and in the next, tender. Much like the rest of us. Every episode leaves me hanging, hoping for more. Thank you. I'm elated that you like it, and hope you like the next episodes, too. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen and write such a very lovely review. It means a lot to me. A special shout out to Bravo's Baker Manning, my beautiful, singular, unicorn, high-vibing friend. Baker is not only my dear and inspiring friend of many years, she's also one of the most supportive and vocal lovers of Evening's Kingdom so far, taking this story on bike rides through summertime, nighttime, Charleston, South Carolina, and telling all her friends. And yes, she is that Baker Manning. She is the raven babe with the hair and the voice who was on Bravo's Below Deck series. And she has a great book out on how you too can become a yachty, a lifestyle that will completely set you free, let you save up money while traveling the world. The pictures she sent from her voyages, what a life. Baker truly lives her life as a work of art. And I admire her so damn much. She's a beautiful writer, too. If you're at all interested in adventuring, absolutely check her out and pick up her book via 
bakermanning.com. That's Manning with two N's. And at bakermanning87 on Instagram to learn how you can live a life of freedom and adventure while still saving money. It absolutely is possible. And she is a living testament to that. And yes, she is even more beautiful in person and in her soul. I love you, girl. I'm loving all the sweet reach outs. And I'm just geeking out that you guys are so into this story. Please feel free to share your thoughts in your iTunes reviews so we can expand the conversation. Brock Roden recommends The King Killer Chronicles by Patrick Rothfuss, which is amazing. I just picked it up, and his stagecraft is deliciously apparent and inspiring from every page. Thank you for feeding my book dweller's soul. Erica Rupp recommends Wilding, The Return of Nature to a British Farm, about a pioneering rewilding project in West Sussex, using free-roaming grazing animals to create new habitats for wildlife. Very cool. I also had a recommendation for The Delicious Like No Other by Feda, F-E-H-D-A-H, who is not just a mind-blowing musician. She's also a major babe and an astrophysicist. Talk about crazy expansive. Thank you, Taylor White, lovely friend and confidant of my misspent youth, who is now, amongst many other fascinating things, a dungeon master. I'm excited to play a game with you when we roll through LFK. Yes, Lawrence, fucking Kansas, my homeland. Also, our sweetheart of a friend, Kelly Galantine, who is joining the schoolie community in Charleston, South Carolina. She is building a schoolie Airbnb with her wonderful daddy-o Gary Galantine, who once upon a time let my sweetheart and I crash his birthday party, and then we stayed for a month in his driveway in our schoolie. Because the wandering life is like that. My love and I work remotely, so if you give a mouse a cookie, you know, you've been warned. Anyway, thank you all for sharing this story with your friends. I love that she is spreading her wings into the world and coming alive in you. Please don't miss the next episodes. Subscribe on eveningskingdom.com and I'll send you a note when the next one is up. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. Subscribe and stay tuned. The rest of the story is just down the road.